right, thank you guys very much. Um, so my son, he's in Children's Church now, but uh, he came in to the service this morning, and he handed me my phone. And I said, where'd you get that? He said, in the bathroom. I said, here at church? And he said, yeah. So that's kind of awkward. I left my phone in the bathroom. I don't know if any of you others came across it and just left it there. But anyway, Jack found it, and um, I appreciate that. <clears throat> well, combined worship services are a blessing, and I feel a little bit like Peter, who at the Mount of Transfiguration, he said to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. I feel like that this morning. It is, it is good for us to be here. This is a good place to be, and uh, I, I love that we're here um, together. I want to thank uh, Brent Croker and the team that went to Niger, the report that they give, gave during the Sunday School Hour, the time uh, that they put uh, into putting that together and into presenting. Just a, just a neat ministry report with us. I'm grateful for our involvement in Niger and the way in which our church has responded so generously uh, to seeing what we're doing there uh, and what uh, Hosanna Institute is doing there uh, really thrive. Um, this morning, I'm going to begin a new tradition here at Enid Envy Church. And for those of you who might be visiting, this isn't really a typical Sunday. Uh, this is the Sunday that we celebrate another year of God's faithfulness and his provision to our church. Uh, today, we're going to be having our annual congregational meeting. We'll do that after the service. So if you're new or you're checking us out today, um, next week we'll be back to sort of business as usual, but this week is a little bit different. And as I said, I'd like to begin a new tradition here at our church, and that's an annual State of the Church address. And I couldn't really do this last year at this time. I'd only been here about four or five months, so a review of the year would have been a little bit abbreviated, and then any talk of direction for 2013 I think would have been a little premature at that time as I was just sort of getting to know the lay of the land here at EMB. But this year, with all of 2013 in the rearview mirror, and, a, and just a big chunk of 2014, all of 2014 in front of us, I've prepared a State of the Church address. And it just so happens that my State of the Church address coincides with the State of the Union address that's going to be delivered by our president on Tuesday night. Hopefully this one will go better than his. Um, I say that because I think I've got better things to report on than he does. We'll see. But as we talk, you'll notice I have not placed Warren Dell, our moderator, in a chair behind me uh, to cue you when to stand and clap. I haven't done that. Uh, and to my knowledge, we haven't divided the aisles in any strategic way or anything. So <clears throat> when you hear State of the Church Address, don't quite uh, connect it to a State of the Union. But that is happening on Tuesday night. The real point of this message is just to reiterate some of our church's basic distinctives. What are we about? What are we trying to accomplish here? And then maybe ask, what has God been doing amongst us this year? What are the things that we can point to and say, you know, we're doing his will. We're bringing him glory. We're really following his heart. He's bringing us great joy. What are those things? Before I get to some of those particulars, I want us to briefly study... Just a few verses in the New Testament. They're from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 16 to 18 together in just a moment. But just a word on the book of 1 Thessalonians. When the Apostle Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, when they entered into Thessalonica in about 50 A.D., 
it was the first time the gospel had ever been preached there. They arrived in the city on Paul's second missionary journey. They'd just left Philippi. Remember that whole story? And Luke records the amazing results of their ministry in Acts chapter 17. And what we see in Luke's account is that basically, in just a few short weeks, a group of Thessalonians came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So in just three weeks, in a place where they had not been a church, <clears throat> God birthed a church. Persecution broke out almost immediately, forcing Paul to leave. But then several months later, after Paul had, had heard of the, of the faithfulness, the continued faithfulness of the Thessalonians, he sends the church this letter, and it's known to us as First Thessalonians. And in it, Paul gives this infant church encouragement and doctrine, and he reminds them of, of his love and, and his faithful prayer for them. He even commends them in, in chapter 1, calling them an example to all the other churches brand new church, an example to all the other churches. But let me give you a couple reasons why I think 1 Thessalonians is of particular interest. One, this is the first inspired letter written by Paul. James is the first New Testament book written, penned by James, the brother of Jesus. Mark is the first gospel written, written by John Mark. We're currently studying that here. I think we've done three weeks in that. We'll be in our fourth week next, next week. But 1 Thessalonians is the first book written by Paul, the famed apostle to the Gentiles. And if you've studied 1 Thessalonians, you know there is a richness to the teaching of this letter. Though the Thessalonians were young Christians, maybe six months of Christian experience they had under their belt, Paul is instructing them in, in the great and, and deep truths of the Christian faith. The doctrine that surrounds salvation and sanctification and assurance and the Trinity and the nature of man and the resurrection and the day of the Lord, it's all here in this book. So the training wheels Paul has sort of taken off. He's not treating them as if they're immature, and that's because Paul wants this church to have a, a depth of theological understanding that's required for them to both endure suffering and to carry out ministry, to, to maintain themselves as a church. So Paul is writing them this letter of comfort and exhortation and instruction, and this is exactly what they need. As an apostle, the Spirit is leading him in exactly the way to keep this church thriving and ministering there in Thessalonica. And as he gets to the end of the letter, he begins to lay out some imperatives, some commands to live out as they seek to honor Christ. We're going to read three of those commands and seek to apply them this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, <clears throat> Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. John Walvoord, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he held that title for 35 years. He described these verses as the most simple yet profound exhortation found anywhere in the Word of God. And that's tough to argue with. I mean, look at the fundamental nature of what Paul is teaching here. Rejoice at all times, pray at all times, give thanks at all times. I mean, if you stick to that, 
You can't phase that. The person that does those three things is a rock. The person who stays in touch with those three attitudes is just a spiritual force. But realize this is first and foremost a letter to a a church. It does apply to you individually, but it also needs to be alive in us corporately. He's saying these attitudes need to pervade our existence as a body. And in applying it to the church as a whole, Paul then attaches a tremendous truth to those three imperatives. He says, for this is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. How often we ponder the question, God, what is your will for my life? So much, so much prayer and time and anxiety is given to thinking through God's will and God's plan and in wondering what God's want, God wants and what we think he might be blessing. And we sometimes get what I call paralysis of analysis because we want so badly to do God's will, we just don't know what that is. Is it option A, or is it B, or is it C, or is it A? And we sit back and we just say, hmm, I don't know. Let me erase that whole mystery with these verses. God's will for you is right here. Rejoice at all times, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So if it's not sin, then I don't care what you do. Because if you're expressing these three attitudes, you are in the center of God's will for your life. Now what I want to do is this. I actually want to work backwards through these verses this morning. So let's start with the last one first. Rather than start with rejoice always, let's start with give thanks in all circumstances. Giving thanks in all circumstances is God's will for your life. Now you need to notice, it doesn't say to give thanks for all circumstances. You don't have to love everything you're going through. But a heart of gratitude can remain even when circumstances are horrible. And this is true because if you know God and you love God and you know God loves you and you know that he's sovereign and in control of all things, then you know all things are going to work together for ultimate good. That little phrase, in all circumstances, in pante, as the Greek says. It means in connection with everything that occurs. So in connection with everything in life, give thanks no matter what that might be. No matter what happens to you in life, be thankful. No matter what circumstances, no matter what struggle, conflict, trial, testing, setback, be thankful. Give thanks. And this is not some nebulous thanks that we just sort of fire off into space. It is a thanks given directly to God. True thanksgiving has a definite content and a definite recipient. I am thankful for breath and I'm thankful to God for that breath. Furthermore, and this is really at the heart of what the Bible is about, thanksgiving, not the holiday, just the attitude, thanksgiving is the very essence of the Christian's attitude. If a Christian is anything, he should be grateful. And being unthankful is the very essence of the unregenerate heart, of the non-Christian's attitude. The Apostle Paul, elsewhere in his writing, makes this very clear. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 is often called the doctrine of man. 
describes for us the state of man's heart and its sinful condition. And in verse 21 of Romans 1, he says, Paul does, he says, they knew God, speaking of man, mankind. That means through conscience and creation, God was visibly made manifest to mankind. It was no mystery where they came from, and it was no mystery how they were to live. They knew God. But even though they knew God through creation and conscience, he says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. There it is. Just the grand indictment on sinful man. That's the charge against the non-Christian. That he refuses to do the will of God. He refuses to do what is absolutely basic to creation, and that is to thank God for everything. So in light of all that, are we a thankful church? I think we are a thankful church. I don't think we've mastered gratitude necessarily, but I, but I do think I, I'm looking out upon a thankful people. Why do I say that? How do I come to that conclusion? Well, many of us grieved the loss of loved ones this year. The loss of a mom or a dad or a husband or a brother or a friend. And I think of, of Daryl Taves. At this time last year, his cancer wasn't even diagnosed. By August, he went home to be with the Lord. But in that trial, in his heart, and in the heart of, of Gay and Matt and Sam, amidst shock and confusion and disbelief, I saw thanksgiving. I saw, I saw gratitude. Gratitude for each other, for perspective, for all the, the tiny graces you experienced in times like those. Gratitude. I think of Jake, both. Last spring, standing with Beverly at Jake's, at Jake's bedside, just moments after he'd passed on. What was she doing? She was grieving, but she was grateful. Her heart was, was, was empty, but at the same time, it was full of thanks. She was experiencing thanks, expressing thanks for all the years, all the sacrifices, all the love and joy that was their marriage. I'll, I'll never forget that, that moment. And there were, of course, others, Alvin Johnson and Martha Both and Michael Hartling and, and all those families. We saw them maintain a heart of thanks in the midst of what really is ultimate loss. But it wasn't just in death. Many of you were plagued with major health issues this year. Ralph, Dwayne, Janie, Angie, the four of you come to mind, yet there's many, many, many others. And though cancer treatment is difficult and unknown diagnoses are frustrating each of you maintained a grateful heart. You kept thanking, kept giving of yourself, kept serving in the strength that the Lord supplied. All sorts of crisis situations in our church this year, marriages and with kids and with finances and with jobs, and these are things that happen in a year's time. And I watched so many of you face those circumstances, but not in a way that you were shaking your fist at God. Rather, you continued to acknowledge His goodness and the way He was providing and carrying you through the frustration and the pain. You were, you were grateful. Again, to be clear, to give thanks in all circumstances is not some pie-in-the-sky, happy-go-lucky outlook on life. To give thanks in all circumstances displays a life that is anchored in truth and in meaning and in a reality that is deeper than those circumstances. It's a gratitude that's anchored in the trust that you have in Jesus Christ. 
It's the realization that since God is creator and you are his creation, he owes you nothing. So all of life is grace upon grace upon grace. Give thanks. Second command to a church wanting to do God's will is to pray without ceasing. I know something is probably true about your life because it's true about my life. No matter how much I pray, I always feel like I don't pray enough. Do you feel that way? Who feels that? We all feel that way. Martin Luther used to say, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. And that's true. I, I, I shoulder an almost constant state of, of guilt about my lack of prayerfulness. It doesn't really matter even how much I pray. I always feel like I haven't prayed enough. And it's partly due to the fact that I haven't prayed enough. But then Paul comes along and says, pray without ceasing. And I'm like, man, how do I keep up with that? But the word pray here is just, just a general word, uh, prosukamai. It's the most common New Testament word for pray. It could be praise, it could be thanks, it could be confession or petition, or it could be intercession, submission. It's just, it's just pray. It's a very general term. And then without ceasing is a word that basically means recurring so it doesn't mean non-stop talking. It means recurring prayer. It means prayer as a way of life. We're to be continually in prayer, continually in an attitude of prayerfulness. So this doesn't mean that we're to be heads down and eyes closed everywhere all the time. No, it just means that the posture of your life is dependent. You trust in God. You, your first impulse is to think of Him, to go to Him, to trust Him. You see how that would be a very necessary piece of doing the will of God? Doing the will of God is trusting God. And you're at the height of trust when you're praying to Him. It's awesome to see how verse 17 here fits in the whole context of chapter 5. As I said, Paul, as he closes this letter to the Thessalonian church, he wants to, to help them set their church on the right course for the future. It's a good church. It's a noble church. It's a spiritual church. It's a church enduring suffering and persecution. But he wants to remind them about how to grow into a healthy, mature flock. It's just a few months old, this church. It's a young church, but he's got a growth plan for them. In verses 12 and 13, becoming a healthy flock involved the right relationship between the shepherds and the sheep. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. But Paul points out, okay, that needs, to, that needs to be in place among you. In verse 14 and 15, growing a healthy flock demanded the right relationship between the sheep and the sheep. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another. So, the sheep and the sheep. Getting along, serving one another, loving one another, deferring to one another. And then here in verse 16 through 18, a healthy church, a healthy flock, a mature congregation demands a right relationship between the sheep and the great shepherd. Give thanks in all circumstances. Pray without ceasing. These vertical commands, these vertical activities, you and God, us and the Lord Jesus. And then their last command, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, whenever the subject of the shortest verse in the Bible comes up, 
everyone blurts out John 11.35, Jesus wept. And in your English Bible, John 11.35 is the shortest verse, but in the Greek New Testament, in the language that the New Testament was written in, the shortest verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. It also makes it the shortest command in the Bible. And I'm just wondering, do you ever think of joy... Because rejoice here doesn't mean necessarily sing or exclaim something. It just means to have joy. Do you ever think of joy as a command? When we think of the things the Lord has commanded, do we think of joy? The Bible actually commands us to rejoice 500 times. That's a lot of times. And I think the, the, the command to rejoice always gets lost on us because it seems to me that we're sort of addicted to evaluating our life based on our circumstances. We're always taking inventory of our life and saying, okay, I have plenty of money right now, I'm happy. I'm healthy right now, I'm happy. My kids are obedient right now, I'm happy. My spouse is serving me, I'm happy. But turn even one of those phrases around. And I don't know how we're going to make ends meet, I'm not happy. My spouse is being selfish. I'm, I'm not happy. My health is failing. I'm, I'm not happy. My life has taken sort of this unexpected turn. I'm, I'm not happy. And we sort of allow outside circumstances to destroy our joy. Let me just say, if that's true of you, which it's been true for me, it might just be that you never really had joy to begin with. You had, you had happenstances that happened to be happy. But that's not really joy. Joy is distinct from happiness. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that's not dependent on outward circumstances. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that's not dependent upon outward circumstances. But for so many of us, we can't rejoice always. We can't have joy in our circumstances because our functional Lord is our circumstances. So perhaps, perhaps... The reason we don't have joy so often is because we have the wrong Lord. Our Lord is our finances or our health or another person. And when those things fail, our joy fails with them because it's the wrong Lord. The Bible calls that idolatry. And it's tied up in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The only shot that we have to obey the command to rejoice always is if our Lord is the Lord Jesus. That's why it says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the second one? Joy. We can't manufacture this. This is Spirit-given. This is an act of grace. This is a, a, a work of God in us that brings love and joy and peace and then all the rest as well. Real quick, and this is a state of the church address, I want to talk a little bit about the year ahead. So in light of what we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians 5 and what we feel like, okay, this is God's will for us, to just continue rejoicing, to continue to give thanks in all things, to to be a people of just strong and mighty and consistent prayer. What What is... 2014 hold for us? What, what am I excited about? What, what should we be excited about? Well, there in your notes, I just have a few things, four things. Reaching more people. Reaching more people. 
As I said last fall in our sermon series on the church, that, that imperfect series, if you guys remember that, the fundamental purpose of the church is growth. It's expansion. We had 25 people join the church last year. We have at least that and new people that are attending regularly, and it seems like more all the time. In 2013, we had the largest Easter attendance in 25 years, and that's as far as the records went back, so I don't know if it was the largest ever or not. But we are now regularly up over 300 people in attendance. People are checking us out. They're sticking around. We're reaching people. But, but hear me now. I don't want to just grow for growth's sake. Growth in a church can be intoxicating and validating, but, but that's not what I'm after. Now, I, I want to grow because we've been given a mandate in Scripture to, as we go, make disciples. Make new converts. See people come to faith in Jesus. And because, our thi- and because I think our church has a distinct and important ministry in our community, I think our church has something to offer our community. I think our church has something to offer people, believers. It can minister. It can disciple people. It can send them out on mission. And if all that's true, then we should want to reach people. I don't know if you've thought about it, but Enid's a really unique place for a town of 50,000 people. And it's unique in the fact that for a town that size, we also always have an influx of new people in our community. The Air Force Base ensures that young couples, young families, they're always moving to Enid. And many of these couples have small children. Many are looking for a church home. Many are needing the support and stability that a church family can provide because they're often moving around. And, and, and that, to me, as our, our church is here in this place, that is an opportunity to be seized. And you might say, well, well Jay, those people are only going to be here three or four years, and they're going to move on. How is that a good strategy? That seems like a waste of time. They're not going to dig in and be... No, it's a mission strategy. Bring them in, train them, disciple them, send them out. But we also want to be successful evangelists. We don't want to just grow just just because people are moving in or just because people are choosing to leave other churches, maybe to come to our church. Ideally, we want to make new converts. We want to see those far from God be brought near those far from God come in and then put their trust, their faith in Jesus. We want to be successful evangelists. When was the last time you were around a new believer? When was the last time uh, you, you maybe brought a, a new believer uh, to church? I mean, new believers in church are, are delightful. They're delightful. They're a mess sometimes, but they're a delightful mess. Just one example of this, you know, Somebody that's, that's uh, maybe been in church a long, long time. Obviously, they come to church with some measure of expectations. Those expectations might be good or bad or indifferent, I don't know. But oftentimes, a new believer comes to church and says, You have coffee? This is great. You have child care? Oh, this is wonderful. You know, they're not parsing and getting technical on the nature of which you deliver those things. They're just, they're just, they're just blown away. This is wonderful. New believers are great. We want to continue to try to reach into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and into the people around us to see people come to faith in Christ. That's why we're here. That's why God has placed us here. So what are the barriers to that? There are barriers to that for any church, not just for our church, but there are barriers to reaching people. You know, outside of just your own boldness 
in sharing the gospel? What's keeping us from doing that in, in a more diligent and concentrated way? We need to think that through because we want to reach people. Again, because we have a ministry that we think will serve people well, that we think will disciple people and grow them up and send them out. That's why we're here. Let's keep reaching people. We also want to continue to live out ministry values this year. I've just identified three basic values. They're on our website. Uh, They're starting to show up in different places. Three basic values. The values of gospel, people, and mission. Gospel, people, and mission. I feel like those are our values right now. Those could possibly change. I, I don't know, but right now... That, those three things are where I live. A gospel-centered church is one in which the gospel is proclaimed clearly and consistently and compellingly, and it's applied to every aspect of life. So the gospel doesn't exist sort of just over here and is sort of the entrance requirements to getting into the church or becoming a Christian, and then you move on to other things. No, the gospel has just fully-orbed implications for everything you do and everything we are gospel sinner. The other value I just said is, is people. We talked about this last fall. The, the church is not a place, but a people. A community that is continually being reformed and renewed by that gospel I just spoke of. And, and that gospel community becomes the vehicle for, for God's mission in the world. And so that leads us to that third value, mission. The gospel is a call to mission. So a gospel-centered church will train people to live on mission. And not, that doesn't mean go on mission trips. That means in the practical rhythms of your everyday life, you will seek to see the gospel proclaimed to everyone in every place, in every sphere that you exist in. Therefore, the mission of our church is teaching and learning God's word, the gospel. We want to teach and learn God's word. I don't just want to teach God's word. I mean, I I want to do that. I I feel like that's my calling. But I want you to learn it. So it's not just my activity. It's also your activity. Teaching and learning God's word, the gospel. All that's wrapped up in those 66 books of the Bible. All that's wrapped up in God's plan to redeem and to call out a people for himself, the gospel. Let's let's teach that diligently. Let's, let's, Let's learn that with great fervence. So, our mission is to teach and learn God's word, the gospel. Our mission is to connect and care for people in every generation. So, we're a multi-generational church. So, when I use the term people, I mean all of us. I don't mean just young folks or youth or, or, or sort of the middle years people, middle-agers or whatever. I mean everybody. What a blessing it is to be in a church where we have young families, little kids, infants, but also people in their 90s. And we have lots of them in all those different categories. That doesn't exist everywhere. That's lost, actually, in a lot of churches today. We have something very special. We want to connect and care for people in every generation. All of us needs connection. All of us needs care and ministry. And it's people that do that with one another. It's not programming necessarily. It's people that are connected and are able to care for each other. So we want to teach and learn God's word. We want to connect and care for people in every generation. And then we want to reach and serve our neighbors and the nations. That's mission. 
notice I didn't say we want to we want to just reach the nations. We want to reach our neighbors, the people across the street, the people down the hall. So living out our ministry values, that's something we're about here this coming year. Third thing there in your notes, clarifying leadership. At our annual meeting today, we're asking you to endorse a new leadership structure for our church. And the formation of this structure has been really years in the making, going back to even before I came as pastor. But since I've come, I've sought to shape the structure in three important ways. I've said that it needs to be biblical, simple, and functional. So biblical, we believe God has told us in his word about the leadership design of his church. And that's what we've put forth for you today that we're asking you to endorse. We want it to be simple. So ambiguity and complexity to an organization are sort of counterproductive. And we have too grand of a task as a church to be counterproductive. We don't want to be counterproductive. So biblical, simple, and functional needs to make sense. It needs to work in the setting that we have here. If I were to draw up a a leadership structure, would it be the one that we're putting forth if we were starting out cold? Not necessarily. There's lots of history here. There's lots of uh, um, um, just things that that, that we have to to sort of take the input on and, and realize, okay, what works here? In light of biblical content, in light of wanting to be simple, what works here? What could have traction in this place? And as I said, this conversation about leadership structure and clarifying it, it's not new. It goes back a number of years, and it really goes back even to um, 2012. So back through all of last year, reaching into the fall of 2012. In September of 2012, I began teaching on elders from Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Uh, I, I gave a sermon on elders. And then also with the leadership teams and the church council, we began to talk about the leadership offices of the church. In December of 2012, we created an ad hoc team that, that their task was to address and to come up with a leadership structure for our church as we moved forward. That ad hoc team is Linford Becker and Roger Ettinger and myself and Carol Jansen. And then in January of 2013, so a year ago, we introduced that ad hoc team. We introduced the work that they'd be doing, what they had in front of them. A few months later, in April of 2013, we started to give instruction on the offices of the church. We did that at a prayer fellowship, handed out a three- or four-page handout um, to all those who came to that prayer fellowship. Then at the end of the summer of 2013, a working model was presented to the church council. We wanted them, the ad hoc committee presented that for the church council to endorse. So then in October of 2013, There were a couple of sermons in the Imperfect series that I mentioned before on church membership and leadership. And then then that same month, we introduced a working model to the church at large, again, at a prayer fellowship on a Sunday night. And then now that leads us here to January of 2014, where we're going to vote today to endorse this model and move ahead with the plan to adopt it. And that adoption will come through the spring with a rough draft of our bylaws being matched or being written to match that structure to the training of potential leaders for that structure. And then the summer of 2014, we'll we'll put forth names 
of those potential elders, those leaders that will exist within the structure. We'll, we'll, we'll publish a final draft of those bylaws that we've asked your input for, and then in September of 2014, nine months from now, you'll vote to install those new bylaws and those elders. And so that, that work of clarifying leadership will begin to really, really take shape. We're still nine months away from installation, and, and, and when that gets installed, that's going to be about two years since my arrival here as your senior pastor, but sort of priority one when I arrived was, hey, we need to get this accomplished. There's a sense of urgency in clarifying our leadership structure. And so two years later, you know, that's not efficient, but it was necessary uh, to take it that, uh, that slow. And then the last point there in your notes, building for the future building for the future. The most important ministry tool we have as our church really is our building. It costs us the most money. Almost every one of our ministries uses it. It's the central hub of our church when we gather. It, it's really a huge part of our first impression to those who may be visiting our church. And as our building approaches 55, 60 years old, we all recognize its need for attention, don't we? Little spaces here, little, little parts of hallways here, classrooms there. Thus, we come to something you've maybe been hearing about, the Renew Campaign. In the spring of last year, in 2013, we were wrapping up the Open, open Arms Project. That came to a close. And the question started to swirl, what's next? What are we going to do? And so, with the Finance and Facility team and some others, we began polling our ministry leaders about about our different building needs. It was, discernment, it was determined that a task force would need to be assembled. That, that task force would, would develop a long-range master plan. And so the executive council, together with finance and facility, pulled together a small group of our church members together. And what was born out of that group was this Renew Campaign. And the vision of the Renew Campaign is to honor the God who makes all things new and reflect his heart to be always renewing our lives, our church, our community, in our world. And the scope of the Renew Campaign will be a three-phase campaign that seeks to restore, rebuild, and renew the structure of our church building in accordance with what our ministry needs might be. And then the hope of the Renew Campaign, the hope attached to the Renew Campaign is for our people to be more effective in reaching our community with the redeeming love and power of Jesus Christ. We want to renew our building as a way to better participate in the gospel renewal that God wants to bring to the people that we live with, we learn with, and we labor with. So more about the phases and the progress of all that in our annual meeting. But all that to say, just in conclusion, as I, as I begin wrapping up, man, I'm really excited about our church. I'm excited for 2014, and not just because the budget is being met and we, and we might do some construction those really aren't things that excite me. I'm, I'm excited because we've been placed here in Enid, Oklahoma to spread the gospel, and I'm seeing us do that more and more and more. And the more committed to the gospel we, we, we become, the more it shapes who we are, and the, more it sh and the more it shapes who we are, the more we share it with others. So whether that's with neighbors or coworkers or through forgotten ministries or students in your schools, gospel-shaped people share the gospel. And the kingdom expands because of it. So you need to know, I, I don't care if we're a big church or a small church 
a cool church or a sophisticated church, a relevant church or a traditional church. I don't care about any of that. But I do care, I deeply care to be a faithful and fruitful church. A church faithful to the Word of God and a church bearing the fruit that comes with the Spirit's presence. I'm excited about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in this place this morning. Thank you for your word that tells us exactly what your will is for our church. To be grateful, to rejoice and have joy. God, to to give thanks. To pray without ceasing. God, help us to do that. Empower that in this place. And then as we as we follow you and we live out of the overflow of that, Lord, I pray that you would continue uh, to, to bless us with faithfulness and fruitfulness. God, I thank you for a, a, a great year of ministry, for the ups and the downs of 2013. Look forward to 2014 and, and thinking through what you might do in, in the coming year. I thank you for the, the new faces that we have here. I thank you for the, the, uh, the, the old faces that we have here, people that have been here a long time. I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the unity that only He can bring, that those, those lives would be knit together in a meaningful way. God, that we would continue to worship You in spirit and truth. That we would continue to, to proclaim the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would herald the truth about who Your Son is what he came to do, his conquering of sin and death, and his bringing abundant life to all who would trust in him. If anybody needs to do that today, Lord, I pray that through a very unconventional message, maybe they come to a place where they, they realize their need for a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.